a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Come on in for an evening of poems and stories about the American West. A land of legend, of romance, of friendship and courage. A mother load of remembrance. A true showcase of the Old West with the old cowboy, J.C. Holsey. In New York City, March 18, 1852, Henry Wells and William G. Fargo joined with several other investors to launch their namesake business. The discovery of gold in California in 1849 prompted a huge spike in the demand for cross-country shipping. Wells and Fargo decided to take advantage of these great opportunities. In July 1852, their company shipped its first loads of freight from the East Coast to mining camps scattered around Northern California. The company contracted with independent stagecoach companies to provide the fastest possible transportation and delivery of gold dust, important documents, and other valuable freight. It also served as a bank buying gold dust, selling paper bank drafts, and providing loans to help fuel California's growing economy. In 1857, Wells Fargo and Company formed the Overland Mail Company, known as the Butterfield Line, which provided regular mail and passenger service along an ever-growing number of routes. In the boom-and-bust economy of the 1850s, the company earned a reputation as a trustworthy and reliable business, and its logo, the classic stagecoach, became famous. For a premium price, Wells Fargo and Company would send an employee on horseback to deliver or pick up a message or a package. Wells Fargo and Company merged with several other Pony Express and Stagecoach lines in 1866 to become the unrivaled leader in transportation in the West. When the Transcontinental Railroad was completed three years later, the company began using railroad to transport its freight. By 1910, its shipping network connected 6,000 locations from the urban cities of the east and the farming towns of the Midwest to the ranching and mating centers of Texas and California and the lumber mills of the Pacific Northwest. After splitting from the freight business in 1905, the banking branch of the company merged with the Nevada National Bank and established new headquarters in San Francisco. During World War I, the U.S. government nationalized the company's shipping routes and combined them with railroads into the American Railway Express, effectively putting an end to Wells Fargo and Company as a transportation and delivery business. The following April, the banking headquarters was destroyed in a major earthquake, but the vaults remained intact and the bank's business continued to grow. After two later mergers, the Wells Fargo Bank American Trust Company, shortened to the Wells Fargo Bank in 1962, became and has remained one of the biggest banking institutions in the United States. How many times have you seen one of them Wells Fargo stagecoaches in a movie? I bet it's been quite a few times. How you folks doing today? It's another glorious day in the month of March in Texas. We're going to be enjoying some original country music a little later, and we're going to visit with Arthur Gordon Osborne. But right now, let's take a gander and see what happened on this day. March 23, 1862, the Confederate General Thomas Stonewall Jackson faced his only defeat at the Battle of Kernstown, Virginia. Then on March 23, 1880, John Stevens of Nenaw, Wisconsin, patents the grain-crushing mill. This mill allowed flour production to increase by 70%. Why don't you send me your birthday and we'll see what happened in the Wild West on the day that you were born. Send an email to jc at outlawspublishing.com or jc at theoldcowboy.net. You know, I don't think I'll ever get tired of hearing new singers. We've got a new singer here for the show, Courtney Patton. She's going to be singing an original song, Twisted. Take it away, Courtney. 
My name's Courtney Patton, and this is a song I wrote called Twisted.
Thanks so much, Courtney, for that great song. I personally think we have some of the most talented singers in the business on our show. How about you? Would you like to be one of those singers? Would you like to sing on the Wall West Showdown? It's probably one of the easiest things you'll ever have to do in your musical career. All you have to do is send an email to jc at outlawspublishing.com or jc at theoldcowboy.net. Let us know that that's what you want to do, and we'll make it happen. Right now, let's visit with Gordon Osborne. We want to welcome to the Wild West Showdown today, Arthur and Speaker Gordon Osborne. Welcome, Mr. Osborne. Thank you very much, J.C. It's a pleasure to be with you. you got quite a resume. Uh, it looks like you was a, went to law school. Yes, I even graduated. Graduated law school. And, and then <laughs> what happened after that? 35 years of practicing law on Wall Street. Certified but equally retired lawyer. After 35 years, you know, the first 35 years of practicing law are the hardest. Yes. And I survived that, but I retired as soon as I could. Okay, you've authored several stage plays. Uh, did any of them hit the big time? No, no, and that's a great indictment of the uh, of the public. Uh, they've all been successful in their own little ways, but you know, plays, unless their name is Tennessee Williams or or uh, something like that. I mean, my plays have been produced around the country, and uh, they've they've gotten good reviews. But to get a really big success, you basically have to be on Broadway, and I've never had a Broadway play. Darn it! Well, it seems like that's the same problem we have with authoring books. Unless we're a big name author, we're nobody. So tell the world. That's what we're trying to do, uh, but we got to do it a day at a time. Uh, you got another title to a book here that's kind of interesting. So you think you know English? A guide to English for those who think they don't need one. Now explain that to me, please. Well, it's a bit haughty. The title is a bit aggressive. Yes. <laughs> my point was that when I lived in San Diego from ninety to well, ten years in San Diego, I taught. Uh, it was sort of a remedial course in living after practicing law, I taught English as a second language, hmm. and I just loved it. I mean, I, I do really regard teaching as the ultimate profession. I, I can't think of anything that's more satisfying, and I just loved it. I taught English as a second language. Uh-huh. And in order to do that, I sort of had to refresh my knowledge of English because I knew how to write it, but I didn't know why I was writing it right. So I decided that what people needed, particularly teenagers these days who don't even try, I figured not only be able to do it right, but to know why you're doing it right, to know the parts of speech, the sentence structures, all of that stuff, which I think makes English just come alive. 
And I had many students who said, you know, your approach is so different. Well, for one thing, I was about 80 years older than any of their other teachers. My students came to me and they said, you know, your methodology really works. So have you ever thought of writing it down? So I said, well, I haven't, but now I have. The first book I wrote was my a codification of my approach to teaching English. And it's been very successful in terms of university libraries and other schools. As I get older, I I'm sometimes forget. <laughs> and I have to read my own book to sort of bring me up to date. I reckon I need to read it because I don't have any education. I've got a seven-year-old. She's fixing to turn seven at the end of this month. Great-granddaughter. And she's in the first grade. And she's learning about verbs and nouns and all of this. And I have no idea what she's talking about sometimes. Well, congratulations. You are married? Yes. Do you have kids? No. No kids? No kids. And no goats. No goats. But you got cats. How many cats do you have? I have two glorious cats, uh, and I love them more every day. And But, you know, I know you're a great cat and dog owner, and I've tried to construct in my own mind why these animals mean so much to us and why we're so attached to them. And I've come up with two reasons. One is beauty, and the other is innocence. And those are qualities that you find sometimes in humans, but but not universally. No, what I think it is, it's unconditional love. They love you no matter what happens. That'd be unique in a person. Has there been anybody in, in your career that has inspired you to take that next step, for instance? Yes, and I don't know how welcome a name this is, but I, I suspect if it's not welcome in Texas, it's probably not welcome anywhere. One night, I watched a Mike Wallace interview with a rather homely Russian woman who spoke with an accent that you could cut with a knife, and suddenly everything she said made sense to me. And from that moment on, Ayn Rand has been my principal ideological inspiration. When did you decide that you wanted to be an author? I've always loved writing, and in 35 years of practicing law, you do a lot of writing. But on the other hand, you know, legal writing gets a bit of a knock. They only know how to write one way. Well, that's not true. Actually, lawyers generally, in my experience, certainly my partners and associates, write better and more clearly and more effectively than people who have never been to law school. I regard those 35 years as very well spent in the practice of learning how to write. Approximately how old were you when you decided to publish books other than law books? That was pretty late. That was around um, <laughs> around the turn of the century, and I'm talking about this century. When I was practicing law, I didn't have time to do much creative writing. But then I decided as I was approaching retirement, I took my chances on a few plays, and they turned out really well uh, in terms of, I thought, their quality and their critical reception. But I never made the big time. So I, when I left New York and went to San Diego, then I started writing other kinds of books because the plays, I couldn't supervise their productions because I wasn't there, so I didn't want to do that. So I wrote other kinds of books, and then when I came to Brazil, I wrote my five books, one per year, basically. They were novels, and I did an unauthorized autobiography, which stoops some people. (laughs) Then I wrote uh, The Page, my latest novel, and I've got two other books which are in in queue for publication later this year. What is the difference between writing a play or writing a novel? 
Well, it's a significant difference because in writing a play, it's all dialogue. So you have to really learn how people speak and how people speak in different voices. And that was a challenge. And also, the only time you can really editorialize in a play is what they call stage directions and line indications. And actors hate that. And directors hate that because they want to do the they don't want to do the dialogue their way. They don't want all this interference from the person who created the dialogue in the first place. So I find writing plays a little bit frustrating. Also, when you consider the audience, I think if you write a play, the audience is their, their judgment about the characters and the action is a bit preempted by the fact that it's right there in front of them. They cannot imagine what's going on because it's going on in front of their eyes. But when you write a novel, you not only have the dialogue, but you have the narrative and the perspective to challenge the imagination. So you have a reader reading basically what could be a play, but in their mind, they create the characters. The, create, the characters are not just sitting there in front of them. So I find writing, writing novels the best combination of writing dialogue the way it should be written, but also giving birth to the imagination of the reader in terms of what those characters look like, how they act, and what motivates them. Okay, you said you had six books, all different genres. Do you have a favorite genre? Not really. I love my, my academic book, So You Think You Know English. I, that was a joy to write, and I think it's probably my most valuable book because it influences teachers and students everywhere. Novels are great fun, but I think my next book is a, a jokey book about sports. It's a joke book. It's one of my favorites. I, I'm looking forward to its release later this year. Do you have a publisher? Yes, I do. I have a dream publisher. I have been through the publishing <laughs> I had to go to England to find one, mm -hmm. but I have found my dream publisher. I think he has the same relish and adoration of English that I do, and we are having a wonderful time working together on the, on the last two books. Uh, has there ever been a time as an author that you've gotten discouraged and says, I'm not going to do this anymore? No. Because I don't regard writing as a duty. I regard it as a source of pleasure. In fact, the, the comment that I hear on the Internet most widely that absolutely puts me into hysterics is when someone says, keep writing, exclamation point, as if a writer had to be exhorted to writing. You write because you love to write. It, it's a source of pleasure. If you have that passion, there's no way you can quit, is there? No, not at all. Not at all. And if you and if it's not a book, it's a blog or it's exactly a, it's something something or other. There's always something to write about. Okay, all of these years as a lawyer, do you find that bleeding over into your stories? Yes, because you know the old axiom is you're supposed to write about what you know. Right. And my two uh, branches of my life have been the law and theater. How much time do you spend on social media? Oh, I would say about two or three hours a day. Do you find that taking away from your writing time? No, if I did, I would stop it and, and write. But I, 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 I think I have a pretty good balance between the two. What kind of advice would you give to somebody that says they want to be an author? My first advice would be brutally assess your talent. And, you know, a lot of people feel, well, if I can write a letter or if I can write a text, then I can, I'm a writer. 
<laughs> it's not that easy. You have to assess sort of two branches, I think. One branch is, do I have native ability in terms of writing? Do I have a way of putting words on a page that is different, that is exciting, that's uh, seductive? And then you have to say, well, also, do I have the basic tools to write? Do I have a grasp of English? Because basically, when it comes right down to it, you've got to communicate in English. So I think it's if either one of those questions is questionable, talent you can't do much about. If you're, if you're just sort of a boring, tell-it-like-it-is guy, you're, <laughs> you're sunk. But the, uh, the other stuff you can acquire. Uh, you can acquire a better knowledge of the structure and rules of, of English. But I think uh, if those two questions are answered satisfactorily, then by all means, give it a go. Every person I come in contact with, I encourage them to become a writer. And I think that this is just my opinion, but I think that every person has at least one story inside their head. And all they need to do is sit down and start doing it. I, maybe I'm wrong about that. No, I don't think you are. I don't think you are at all. Because it's only by starting that you can tell whether or not you have the goods. And you're right. There is always a story. question is... Is it a story which engages, which entertains, and perhaps, if you're lucky, enlightens? Okay, do you interact much with your readers? No, I would be delighted to, but I don't have that many readers who, who contact me. Fortunately, they buy the books, but and they give good reviews. And, of course, I always graciously acknowledge a good review and say thank you very much. But I wouldn't say that I have a, a big rapport with my readers. Okay, then let's do something about that. How can folks get in touch with you? My email address is fertile, which is the word, you know, fertility. Fertile, F-E-R-T-I-L-E, one, the number one, at AOL.com. My reason for fertile one is that it's the uh, first name of my most successful stage play, which was called Fertile Deception. Okay. So I use fertile one. Are you on Facebook? I'm on Facebook, also on fertile one, and Twitter. I think it's a different name, but it's Reason Guy. One word, Reason Guy. What was your favorite treat as a kid? I was a big tennis enthusiast when I was growing up, and I was always parched. So for me, a knee-high grape soda was my idea of paradise. Well, I didn't care for the grape. I liked the orange. Knee-high orange and a moon pie. <laughs> oh, moon pie. I think I, that's sort of the predecessor of s'mores, right? Yes, it was, exactly. Uh, you never had a moon pie? I'm not sure. What part of the country were you raised in? Well, I was born in Washington, D.C. If you'd ask anybody in Texas about a moon pie, they'd have been able to tell you what it was. At least the older generation. I don't think the younger people wouldn't know what it is, but uh, it was quite a treat. I'll bet it's round. It is round, yes. And they had two different flavors that I can remember. They had a banana flavored and they had a chocolate. Of course, uh, chocolate was more popular. Yes. What is your favorite treat today? I like champagne. Champagne. I love it. I think my best writing and even my best editing is done with a little sparkling glass of champagne at the elbow. How about a favorite movie or a TV show? Well, that's a good question. Um, I can't think of a movie that I think is much better than A Streetcar Named Desire. You were a lawyer for 35 years. Yes. Was there something that happened in your life as a young man or some special person that might have caused you to lean toward that occupation? 
Well, my father was a lawyer. I was tempted to go into the arts, but I just had a feeling that I wouldn't get the same degree of financial security. I didn't want to have to beg for money later in life. So I knew that uh, lawyers were good writers and respectable people. And I knew that I would meet, and I indeed I did, meet and work with outstanding, accomplished, intelligent, sensitive people. So I have absolutely no regrets. Well, listen, we want to thank you for being a guest on the Wild West Showdown today, and I want to invite you to come back and visit again. Well, it would be my pleasure, J.C., and thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you. Okay, we'll talk to you later then, okay? Fine. Thank you very much, J.C. You know, when I was a kid, I liked country music. However, I had a hard time listening because it was always rock and roll or rockabilly or doo-wop, I think it's called today, that took over the radio stations. Now, since I've gotten older, I realize I probably liked it just as much then as I do now. It just took me a little time to appreciate it. The reason I'm telling you this is because this young lady we're going to listen to now has that sound that reminds me so much of what I heard as a kid. This is Marty Brom singing Forbidden Fruit. Your forbidden fruit Stay away from me All you can bring Is misery Where your heart's like stone It just can't be true Your forbidden fruit Don't want a guy like you Well, tempt me not With your big brown eyes Or your kissable lips about that did that stir some memories of some of you older folks that was great marty thank you i talked a little bit last week about getting your books to sell there was quite a bit of response on that subject so let's talk about it just a little bit more some of the questions were how can i get folks to buy my book first of all you need a good story but that's not going to get anybody to buy your book unless you get them to read it 
So we ask the same question again. How can I get folks to buy my book? I personally believe the cover is very, very important, unlike some other folks that have told me differently. I owned a used bookstore for 10 years, and I think I can tell you what books certain people buy. However, what I want to tell you is this. I had to walk up and down those aisles looking at the covers of the books. If a cover caught my attention, I would pick it up. Now, I might put it back once I looked inside, but the cover is what made me pick it up. So I'll tell you this again. I think the cover is very important. Now, what's the next thing? You've got a good story, even a great story. Has it been edited by a professional editor? No, I didn't ask if you edited it yourself. Or if you let one of your cousins or your mother-in-law do it. You need to get a professional editor that won't be afraid to tell you the story needs worked on. And remember this, no matter how many times it's edited, it's still going to have mistakes in it. So don't be disappointed. Okay, you've got a great story. It's been edited by a professional. It's got a great eye-catching cover. What's next? Well, in this old cowboy's opinion, you need a publicist. And that's something that's going to cost some money. But there's one way to look at it. It doesn't cost anything to publish your book. You can do that yourself. Okay, I hear you. I told you you need a cover. You need an editor. And those do cost money unless you sign with a publisher that does these things for you. Which, by the way, I happen to know a publisher. But to get back to the publicist, a publicist can cost a lot of money unless, again, you sign with a publisher that has an in-house publicist. Now you've got all these steps taken care of. Now what? Well, you need to learn to use social media to push your book. Learn to post the correct way. How do you learn? There's all kinds of tutorials on the Internet explaining how to do this. But you said if I had a publicist. Oh, I know, I know I said that. But a publicist can only do so much. You still have to let folks know that you're the author and let them know you're available to visit with them. If I've learned anything at all from the events I go to is the readers want to know about the author. A publicist can make you known. A publicist can make you famous. But it still takes a personal touch to really connect with your readers. I hope this has helped. I will do this for you. If you want to talk to the old cowboy personally, let me know. I'll be glad to call and talk to you anytime. Send an email to jc at outlawspublishing.com or jc at theoldcowboy.net. I'll be glad to talk to you. What is it about folks that they don't do what they say they'll do? I went to an event recently. I visited with a lot of folks, and I mean a lot of folks. Each and every one of them told me that they'd friend me on Facebook. It's now two and a half weeks later, and not one of those folks did what they told me they'd do. Let me tell you this, I'm a little disappointed. But then again, maybe I'm disappointed in myself. Maybe I didn't make as good an impression as I thought I did. Oh, well. We want to give a special thanks to Courtney Patton and Marty Brom for allowing us to share their music. And thanks to Gordon Osmond for visiting with us today. Now give a shout out to all your folks together around for some good old cowboy wisdom. Don't pick a fight with an old man. If he's too old to fight, he just might kill you. This is the old cowboy, J.C. Halsey, saying adios and happy trails. Come on back next week to the Wild West Showdown with the old cowboy J.C. Holsey.